This morning is Sunday morning. It is February 11th. Our message this morning is a place called there. So Jude is going to read you a scripture that my mother gave me on the way to uh, church. Praise God for mothers, right? And I figured uh, she'd get to hear her grandson read this, the 8th verse. This is Psalm 32, verse 8. Uh, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Amen. Let me get that a little louder for everybody. You did great, Judah. You know, you were born to stand behind one of these things. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Isn't it good to know that God is teaching us His way? He's showing us how to walk. He's counseling us. You ever been attacked? It is good to have a counselor, isn't it? Somebody to tell you what to do, to help you, to plan your next moves. God does that. How important is it? Here, you can go sit down, baby. How important is it that we be where He says to be when He says to be there? It is, isn't it? All right, well, y'all turn with me to Kings. We're going to get into our message, which is a place called there. We're going to be in Kings 17. Tell me when you're there. <laughs> Come on. Already there. Actually, we're going to be in King 16. <laughs> oh, I love the Lord. Worship was fun this morning. I didn't know what to know, what to do about our heavy metal worship song there, and I fell in love with it about halfway through. I want to encourage you. Those hymns that we all grew up with, you know, in the dusty old books, they were new at some point. You know, they were contemporary Christian music to their first audience. You might be surprised to find out that Martin Luther, who wrote the majority of the hymns that Protestants sing, wrote them to the tune of bar music in his day. And that the way that we get our services, most Protestant churches meet between 10 and 11, is because he often stayed up late in the local taverns and had a hard time making 8 o'clock Mass. And since they were kind of kicking off the shackles that had bound them, he decided to move the service back. And that's how we've inherited that. So if you think that God can't work through something that the church world calls unclean and make something powerful, just take a closer look at your life. (laughs) People say what they say, but they cannot argue with what God does through you. Amen. Y'all in uh, King 17? 16. Thank you, Mandy. I'm getting to work with Mandy again, and it is the light of my life. It is exciting. We work together in a business that some would call secular, but because we're in it, we're going to call it Christian. And uh, I'm glad to get to see her every day. So we're in King 1629. Y'all with me? All right. King 1629, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke Yahweh 
the God of Israel to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Ahab not a wonderful human being. Have you heard that God loves everybody? Well, He works in everybody's life, and God is love, that's for sure. He also loves us enough to purge evil from among us. I want to tell you some things that Ahab is known for. He lived in about 900 B.C. That's 900 years before Jesus was born. Ahab is famous for these next few verses. A man under Ahab's rule rebuilt Jericho during Ahab's time. Now that's significant. Gabe, do you remember reading this? We're in a coffee house. There was a curse pronounced by Joshua in the sixth chapter of the book of Joshua for anybody that rebuilt the kingdom of Jericho. There's a reason for that. When God called His people out of slavery and He got and He said, Hey man, for you, you will be a kingdom of priests. I'm taking you into the land that is your inheritance. Something that will be a land flowing with milk and honey. A Hebrew way to say good things. They get up to the edge of the land and they face a city with fortified walls. It symbolizes the stronghold of the world. As Christians, we're told that we're going to inherit the whole world. We're told that we're filled with power from God on high. And yet we face the world that is a stronghold every day. When my son gets picked last at recess on a football team because he's godly and he doesn't smoke. Do you know fourth graders smoke? I thought that was horrible. I couldn't believe they did that. Then I remembered when I was in fourth grade, I stole my parents' cigarettes too. Kids are kids. They got sin bound up in their heart. It's our job to drive it from them. Amen? That <laughs> Judah doesn't know where to say amen or run. But when Judah's standing there and somebody picks other people before him, and those tears begin to well up in him because it hurts to be rejected. He's staring at the walls of Jericho. And God made a promise to the people. When they were marching around this with their leader, Joshua, whose name is Yeshua, Jesus, He said, I don't want you to speak. I want you to do what I tell you to do. They weren't even allowed to speak as they marched around Jericho, except once a day they blew the ram's horn. What makes a ram the king of the sheep is his crown. These horns given to him from God that are the sign of authority. So once a day the priest blew. They put breath or spirit through the king of the sheep's crown and made an announcement to the world. They did this once every day for seven days. But on the seventh day, they did it seven times. And the kingdom that represented this world without sword drawn, without any army, fell. The walls collapsed completely into the ground and it gave way to the people of God. This was symbolic for something. It was symbolic for us, the people of God, only speaking when God tells us to speak and then speaking by the authority of the king of the sheep. Not militant. Not taking things into our own hands. But only what God said to do, the kingdom of this world would fall away to the presence in people of God. Well, that made it a particularly nasty thing to rebuild this kingdom. If this kingdom's destruction was symbolic of God's kingdom enveloping the earth, it was wrong to rebuild it. So Joshua, if anyone rebuilds this wall, rebuilds this kingdom, 
He'll re- rebuild it at the cost of His firstborn son. He'll set up its gates at the cost of His youngest son. That's a pretty high cost, isn't it? And yet in Ahab's day, somebody was bold enough to do that. So read these next few verses. In Ahab's time, heal. What a heal. Heal of Bethel, rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram. And he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word the Lord had spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Ahab was wicked. Because he was wicked, everything in his kingdom became tainted. And I want you to understand specifically what the disease is. The disease is not that they completely abandon God and worship Baal. That's not it. It would be nice if what Christians contended with were the Anton LaVey's of the the church of Satan. It would be nice if what Christians contended with were the Hindus of the world, people with 12 national gods, rats. That's not it. What Elijah had to contend with in Ahab's kingdom is people with a divided heart. People that thought that worship Yahweh God and worship Baal right beside him. That saw apparent conflict with mixing the kingdom of Jericho, the world, with the kingdom of God. Tell me that this is not where most Christians are today. A little God is good as long as you can mix Him with the idols that are in your heart. This is not okay. We serve a jealous God. We serve a God that says, I will have no gods beside Me. Don't lift up for yourself any idols. Don't even misuse My name. And somehow or another, people have raised up idols right next to Him. Now, when I say people, when we look into this Word, who are we supposed to see? Ourselves. The Word is a mirror. So as we begin to preach and we teach today, I'll show you some things about salvation because salvation broke out in this place today. I'm going to show you some things about how to minister before God through your lifestyle. Remember that those people who walked around Jericho, they didn't speak. It was simply their deeds that were the witness. And do you know that all of the nations heard about what had happened and their fear of God grew? So that Deuteronomy says the nations are going to see you and go, what a wise and understanding people. There is no people on all the earth whose God is close to them like these Israelites. That is your calling as well. You've been grafted into Israel. You've been grafted into this Jewish king learning to speak only when he says to speak. Learning to see the kingdom of the world fall before you as you do it God's way and no other. You want to get into the Word? By the way, some other things Ahab is known for. His wife was exceedingly wicked. Her daddy not only was a Sidonian king, he was a priest of a false god. And this had a particular influence in Ahab's heart. So much so that in Ahab's day, they persecuted all of the prophets of God to the point where there were only a hundred of them left who had survived because a man named Adiah hid them in a cave. Otherwise, they would have been killed too. Elijah gets so fed up during Ahab's day looking around saying, this kingdom is so polluted, everything is so... There's none left who serve you and you alone. And God said, oh, there's 7,000 left and we all cling to that. Wow, there's 7,000. More than 2 million came out of Egypt 
And they had been growing since then. So I have no idea what the population of Israel is at this time, but it's huge. And there are only 7,000 purely devoted. In Jesus' day, He was asked, Is it true only a few will be saved? He says, Yes, it is as you said. The Gospel of Luke contains those words. And yet, 80-something percent of our nation says that they're going to the king's dominion in heaven. The Word teaches something entirely different. I want to learn what it is to be in the remnant. I want to learn what it is to have an undivided heart. And then, I don't want to just learn it. I want to live it. Cass saw a bumper sticker that has been playing on my heart in a big way. It says, Less talk, more walk. Oh yeah, that'll preach. Less talk, more walk. Amen. Y'all ready for the Word? Okay. In Kings 17, we're going to learn about a place called there. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tish. Don't you love how the Word does that? (laughs) Oh great, thank you. Now I know he's from Tish. I didn't know that when you said he was a Tishbite. (laughs) From Tish in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except in my word. Bold proclamation. James goes to great lengths to make sure you understand Elijah was a man just like us. A regular human being, and yet he stands up before the king of a nation and says, it won't rain in your dominion unless I speak and allow it to rain. Rain in the Bible is a sign of a heavenly blessing. And I want you to understand, there are some things God simply cannot bless. It doesn't matter how many prosperity gospel preachers tell you He can. He will not and cannot bless a divided heart. If you take His gifts and use them on the world's pleasure, even the gifts that you think came from God become a snare to you. Money is not evil, saints, but the love of it is. So what do you think we get when 24 hours a day on our Christian TV stations people are preaching about the love of money? You get things that are evil. It's a gospel of greed. Elijah says, Hey, buddy, there will be no blessings from heaven except at my word. And he did it because this kingdom was tainted. They worshiped Baal right alongside God. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. This is where it gets interesting. Leave here. Turn eastward and hide in the Kiriath Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook I have ordered, and the ravens will feed you there. Where will the ravens feed him? Where will there be water to drink? Where is there? Wherever God said, go. You're going to find out in a little bit that this there moves. God says, go there and they will feed you. Go there and you drink. Go there. So the place is not... We don't need to go build an altar to a specific place. Go to the Kiriath Ravine and build an altar and say, hey, this is God's provision here. God's provision is when you are where He says to be, When, he says, to be there. You ever been filled with fear and anxiety over what tomorrow holds? That happens when you're uncertain whether or not you are in step with God's Spirit. Because Psalm 32.8 says, The Bible teaches us that His good, pleasing Spirit searches out the best places for us to camp. If you are walking with Him and you are in the place where He says to be, 
Provision is just something that happens, not something to be striven for. In fact, it's secondary. But why would he tell Elijah to be here? That's the question. He has something in mind for him. There's a purpose. Elijah lives in a day when the kingdom is torn between worship of Baal and worship of Yahweh. And he wants Elijah to be different. Now, if you were going to equip somebody, if you were going to empower somebody to bring things to America, would you have them go hide by a brook and have them fed by birds? Probably not, huh? You'd make them an orator. You would make them somebody powerful in speech and action. You might even give them an army or at least a fat bank account, right? God never wants you to be confused about where provision comes from. It comes from Him. In fact, look at these next few words. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kiriath Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. All is good, right? He went where God said to go. He did what God said to do. And what happened? God provided for him. By the way, Elijah, he was an American, right? Elijah was a what? You were kidding me. Elijah was Jewish. How about that? You mean he didn't wear a three-piece suit? No? And Jews... Jews, they have this whole special diet thing, don't they? Yeah, and what's that called? Kosher. Jews eat kosher. And they they made that up, right? They made that up because they just wanted to be different. No, God told them in Leviticus 11, 15, that they couldn't eat certain things. You know one of the things that they couldn't eat, that they were supposed to detest? Ravens. They're an unclean bird. So imagine that you're Elijah. Lord, you want me to what? Yeah, okay, well, I'll stand up and tell Ahab. No rain except at my word. Then all of a sudden, because you did that, there's no water anywhere. Lord, what do I drink? What do I eat? What do I do? I shut up the heavens because you told me to. I stood against the nation. You're man of power for the hour. God says, well, I want you to... And I'm going to have some unclean birds feed you. Lord, where's my trophy? I did what you told me to do. Wait, Lord, where's my Mercedes or my giant jet or my silky suit or all the things that they said on that crazy purple hair channel that I should have? I did what you told me to do, Lord. Where is my temporal reward? There wasn't one. Now think about this. Elijah's getting provision there. What would the church world say about Elijah? Let's imagine something. Let's take this shedding and make it American for a minute. Judy, we want you to go to Pennington's Pub. And there in Pennington's Pub, my servant, the unclean tax collector, will come. He will bring you your provision each day. Judy comes in and says, I've heard a word from the Lord. I'm supposed to go hang out in Pennington's Pub and the tax collector is going to bring me food each day. Tell the truth, what do we do? We stone her with our hymnals and leave her dead under a pile of religious books right here. God wouldn't do that, right? No different in this day. The church world would say, no way! God won't feed you through something that's unclean. No way are you supposed to hide. No way! And they wouldn't believe. Craig gave me a quote. Let's paraphrase it because C.S. Lewis is much smarter than me. And his vocabulary is much more extensive than mine. 
to remember that when you argue with the divine, you're arguing with the one who gave you the ability to make an argument. Would you not have argued with God when He told you to go somewhere and eat what an unclean animal delivered to you? Do you remember that in the New Testament, after spending three years with Jesus, the apostles wouldn't even go into a Gentile's house? I mean, now we're talking about 900 years before Jesus in the heart of Judaism. How readily do you think Elijah wanted to go eat what an unclean bird had brought him? So why did he do it? The heart that God can honor is the one that has taken the time to get close enough to hear what He says. We live in a world where everything is competing with God's voice. You turn on the radio and there are commercials designed, I mean marketing degrees given, psychologists been consulted, looking for a way to grab your attention. Do you think it's a mistake, men, that when they want to sell you an oil filter, they put a scandally clad woman there holding it up? If you have this oil filter, your wife will look like this. You know, they're trying to convey a message. (laughs) Our wives already look like that, right? They're trying to convey a message. They're competing for your attention. It takes a special heart to be tuned in to God's voice to hear what He wants you to do. It takes an even more special heart to then do it. You know what the church world would have done with this command? Formed a committee and decide God didn't say do it justified themselves by their religious dogma. We know that God would not have us do this because we put God in a giant box and this is not within the box that we know about God. Fast forward. Be in the first century for me with a moment. Mind, right? You're thinking, here is the Messiah, the God of Israel, the King of kings. I'm so happy. I want to be made whole. Did he? Spit a loogie in the mud? You were kidding me. There's no scriptural precedent for that. Where in all of the 39 books of the Tanakh did God say that it was okay to hawk up a loogie and spit it in the mud and make somebody eyeballs? So what Jesus did was unscriptural. Boy, you can't even get that to come out of your mouth, can you? No, neither can I. It is the Word. If He did it, it's right. Deuteronomy 18, 15 said that he would be a prophet and if you didn't listen to exactly what he said to do, you'd be cut off. Jesus had the right to do it. But sometimes we form this little image in our head of what God will do and what God won't do. And the funniest thing is we like to do this with people. We go, oh, well, God would use David. He's a man of outstanding character. He's good looking. He has wealth, security, Of course everybody would run and listen to David. He's a famous football coach. Surely he's God's chosen instrument to unite the world as a promise maker. Of course God would use him, right? But that high school dropout, that guy who was a drug addict, the one who had 15 demons in him that were cast out, God couldn't use him. God only works through people of great character and report. Friends, I'm so glad that's not true. Where would we be if it was? Paul said to his Corinthian church, not many of you were noble when you were called. I'm happy he could say not many, you know. That meant somebody was. (laughs) Saints, we have to learn to listen. We have to learn to tune ourselves in to what God has to say. We live in a world that's divided between Baal and Yahweh. 
And both voices are there. But Baal shouts a little louder than Yahweh because Yahweh would consider it lowering Himself to have to yell at you. He wants your obedience because He's earned it. Baal wants your obedience because He will bully you into it. If you do that, they will all hate you. If you do that, you will lose everything you have. If you do that, all of those bullyish statements He makes. Well, Elijah had been trained at the hand of God. He heard what God said, and he did what God told him to do. Look at verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. God told me to go west, Elijah. Oh, he told me to go to the brook. And he, let me get this straight. He said that the, uh, the unclean things were going to feed you? Well, yeah, he did. What is the whole church world waiting to happen? For Elijah to fail so they can say, oh, that wasn't God. Have you noticed that people take some delight in talking about pastors who have fallen from their high positions? The world especially takes delight in it. But you expect that. Dogs bark and sinners sin. Why is it that the church is excited when you find out somebody was exposed? And then what do we do? Hypocrite. They're hypocrites. Hadn't looked into the mirror of the Word lately, have we? Guys, it is a sad thing. Waiting for someone to fail... But why do people do it? It excuses them from having to act. See, if you can find fault with everything that was ever spoken, everything that was ever supposed to be done for God, then you don't have to do anything for God. You simply sit back and talk about it as theory and give yourself awards for all of the doctrine you know. And on that day, when you're asked what you did for Him, there'll be a hushed silence in the room and a fearful expectation of judgment says sometime later the brook dried up. Why would God call life to a place? Get him to eat from unclean birds. Drink from a river. And then dry up the brook. Why would he do that? Because Elijah's life had to demonstrate that your provision doesn't come from a brook. Don't confuse. Don't confuse the means or the conduit with which God uses to make provision for you with God. He is my source. I will not worship at the altar of my employer. I will not compromise what God has told me for a secular paycheck. That is the raven. God is the source. Friends, sometimes the best thing that can happen to you is you see the brook dry up. Because when the brook dries up, you get a chance to go, wow, God, you are big enough to use some other source. You get a chance to learn. In studying Elijah's life what it's like to put something at risk for God. Lay aside your reputation and be provided for, but not to camp there. To move every time He says move. And where does God send him? A widow where? Zarephath. Do you remember a word in the NIV? The Syrophoenician woman? King James says Canaanite woman. Do you remember that? This is Zarephath. It's the region of Tyre and Sidon where the Phoenicians live. So we get the word Syro-Phoenician. That's how they put it in the New International Version. And do you remember how Jesus dealt with her? Oh, it's not right for me to give uh, the children's bread to the, the what? Oh, the dogs. So is this an area of the world that is particularly something that the people of God are fond of? No, these are the descendants of Ham, the original Canaanites. And they live in an area, by the way, this is outside of 
it's present day Lebanon that God sends Elijah are enemies of God. They're the people that God said, I want you to wipe them all out. And the Israelites were not obedient. You mean God can use unclean birds to feed a prophet? And now he's sending that very same prophet to people that are supposed to be the enemy of God? You find out God is a very complex guy. He says he will burn the wicked, but he also says, whosoever will come unto me, I will in no way cast out. We serve a God who's not willing that any should perish. But now you're this prophet. You're regular, right? You're eating an express. And the stream that you told everybody God would provide you with, it's dried up. Everybody's thinking now, you're a failure. You don't know how to hear from God. We knew it. We knew that guy would be exposed. I mean, after all, God won't move like that. Our committee says he can't. What's the new word from the prophet? Oh, he's going to the enemy's territory. He's going to hang out among the unclean Gentiles. Boy, I wonder where he got that message. I wonder what in Elijah's life could possibly have given him the message that God could provide for him and receive benefit for him among the Gentiles, those things that were unclean. That's right. I forgot. He was fed for a time by ravens, unclean birds. Hmm. Well, let's see what happens there. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Do you think that was hard for him to hear? It's a widow, right? Don't go to the palace. Don't go and say, Hey, I am the man of God. Fall down and serve me. I'm sending you to the lowest of the society that Jews called dogs. And there you will be fed. Every event in your life, I believe, God has given you so that you would learn to trust Him and each step requires more trust. It was hard to go to the brook. It really was. It was harder to be fed by ravens, but at least there He was alone, right? Now He has to go among the Gentiles and be fed by a widow who he would normally consider to be unclean. But one experience prepared him for the next. Saints, can you say that with me? One experience prepared him for the next. So what does that mean about today? What you're doing today prepares you for what tomorrow. It feels sometimes like you've been abandoned. And God, why? Why would you do this? My job's dried up. My friends don't understand what you've told me to do. Everybody's treating me like an outcast. You trust Him today so that your trust will grow enough to trust Him tomorrow. The day we got saved, we said, Lord, which means owner and controller, save me, which meant the situation you were in, you needed help. But then after He sets you on clean footing and you're learning to walk on the heights, we decide that we'd like to go our own ways. We'd like to do it the way that we would like to do it. And we find all kinds of ways to justify our ungodly behavior by saying it's godly. You start to hear things like this. God wouldn't want me to go to the brook. I can't reach people there. Surely He wants me to go... Where do we want to go? He wants me to go to the marketplace where all the people are and there's food and provision. I mean, God wouldn't ask me to walk off of a football team. Athletes are people that... Everybody listens to. It'll be a voice piece. He doesn't want me to go be a janitor in that school. He didn't call me to that. 
But what if he did? What if he did? One of my very good friends walked off the LSU football team because God told him to. And he went and became a janitor in the school. You know what everybody said? God wouldn't do that. There's a problem with that. God did do that. And his life shows it. I remember the uncomfortable situation having to tell people that I loved and that were close to me that God had told me to drop out of a four-year college and commit myself to the study of the Word with a little hippie pastor in a farmhouse. You know what I heard? God wouldn't do that, except He did. And all of you benefit from it today. Hmm. Let's study a little bit of what God wouldn't do. How about that? Maybe if we look for a little while into the Word and find out just what God wouldn't do, we might find the ability to trust what He tells us to do. Maybe something today will prepare you for your life tomorrow. Oh, hey, you may not find lots of people who love you for it. You may not find wealth and prestige everywhere you go. That's the gospel of greed. I'm telling you that if you want to live a godly life, you will surely suffer. But the rewards are not worth comparing with these light and momentary troubles. I was called to preach at 18 years old. And that, without all of the degrees on the wall behind me to show everybody how impressive I am, right? And I began to complain to God about it. And He said, Your youth and your education will be my means to keep you humble. And in my arrogance, I thought I didn't need to be kept humble. How wrong I was. Who could not have their head swell preaching in a garage? Right? God wouldn't do that. Or would He? You mean God would have you preach in a place with no pews and no stained glass and no steeple? No denomination behind you to affirm that you've said exactly what they told you to say and that it's all right? Oh, He would do that. Hmm. At least two people in here this morning benefited from it, didn't they? And the service is not over yet. (laughs) Amen. Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town in the gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. What a coincidence. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? We do anything to make the gospel attractive, don't we? Please, please, every head bowed. Close your eyes so that nobody sees because, dear God, we don't want you embarrassed. Raise a hand. No, a pinky. Instead, just feel in your heart that you might like to be drawn to Jesus. We've lowered the standard so far that it doesn't mean anything because we don't really want to give up bail for Jesus. In fact, I was in a Christian school where we had things called Spiritual Emphasis Week. Wouldn't it be great if every day the spiritual was emphasized? You didn't have to set aside a week, a year to do it? And what was so wonderful about it is our altar was flooded on Friday. And on Friday night, the back seats of the cars were still full. Can you imagine that? How could that be? We had swam in hypocrisy so much we knew nothing else. In fact, we called it godliness. I'm always disappointed when I hear, oh, so-and-so is such a man of God, and then I'm around him for a few minutes and I don't feel that same spirit there. And yet everybody's convinced. And you say, well, why? Well, look how talented he is. He's a good-looking kid. Comes from a great family. 
He can recite the 14 points of doctrine. You think any of that matters to Jesus? He doesn't care if you're fat, buck-toothed, and have bad breath. He cares whether you do what he tells you to do. Hmm. Good news for me, isn't it? (laughs) All right. He he preaches the gospel to her, right? What does he go to proclaim to her? Hey, go get me some food. I'm sure she was so excited to hear that because it's a famine. Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and uh, please bring me a piece of bread. Some might call that bold. I hear that faith is occasionally bold. Listen to the woman's response. As surely as the Lord your God lives. Dave, you want to write on the board for me again? You loved it so much when I asked you to do it Wednesday night. What I want you to write is the 12th verse. The words, your God. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour, that's good, Dave, in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Well, he sent Elijah to somebody who was upbeat, right? You ever complained about the people you work with? Yeah. So-and-so is never happy. I mean, every time I go in there, they're complaining. Those people are lost. All they do is about sinful things. I wasn't there. I wish I could go work somewhere, wherever the grass is greener. Have you ever considered God sent you there to make a change, to make it different? See, Christians are supposed to be like leaven. You're supposed to be that catalyst of change for God's kingdom. In fact, we shouldn't have to send the Marine Corps. We should be able to send God's emissaries, His apostles, His prophets, His teachers, pastors, and evangelists, inject them into the situation, and suddenly life-changing explosion would happen everywhere. This woman has the sentence of death in her heart. She has no natural provision, and yet God sent a prophet there and said, by this unclean widow, you'll be provided for. Why would God do that? Why not send him to the king of the kingdom? Where would the glory be for God in that? God gets glory out of taking the small, the unclean, the trashy, and making them godly. Now, I know none of you have ever heard that country song, I like my women on a little on the trashy side, because y'all wouldn't listen to that kind of music. You find out God likes His people a little on the trashy side. You know why? Because He won't leave them that way. We serve a life-changing God. He did not call you because you were perfect. He called you precisely because He knew you were not. He looked for people with the sentence of death in their heart. In other words, they understood how bad off they were so that He could raise you up so that He could make you into something and people would go, my God, there must be a divine power with them. You don't think that? Then why did He take Joseph from a slave pit and make him a Pharaoh? Why did He take a nation from one man and make it His princely kingdom over all of the earth? Why did He take a no-account, nondescript person with no beauty or majesty to draw people to Him, a first century carpenter Jew, and raise him to a place where his name is above every name. Because God gets glory in taking the small and making it awesome. 
I think somewhere in that holy book it says don't despise the day of your small beginning. But that's right, it's a minor prophet, it's Zechariah. So surely we never expected you to read that. We're a New Testament church. Never mind the fact that the only Bible they had was the 39 books. Hey, we're a New Testament church. Well, good. How much of that New Testament have you learned? There's only 27 books in it. They're memorized, right? Well, no. But we know our points of doctrine. We can argue and debate with you the best. I mean, after all, what mode were you baptized in? And in what name? And does your wife wear makeup? How about her hair? Is it permed? Let's talk about the length of your skirts for a while. Boy, do we major on minors? How about we just get close enough to Jesus to hear what He wants us to do and then begin to do it? Boy, wouldn't that be a revolutionary idea? I bet you could take 12 people and change the world like that. Oh, that's, that's right. It's been done before. Okay, we're reading their story, aren't we? As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat and die. When Elijah meets this woman, she has no provision. And yet God said she's going to make provision for it. When Elijah meets this woman, the death sentence is in her heart. She's ready just to fold up tent and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Fear is the killer of faith. Fear of what people will think. Fear of what you don't have. Fear in general is a killer of your trust. Saints, you have to learn to throw it out. As long as you are fearful of what will happen if you're obedient, it wars against your obedience. When you got saved, you were supposed to have counted the cost. The day that you committed yourself to Jesus, you were supposed to have counted the cost. What does that mean? That means you realized that it may cost your life. You realized that it may make you uncomfortable. You realized that it may be hard, and yet you still said, Lord, save me. So why then, every time God says for you to do something, does fear rise up in your heart and you begin to recount the cost? That, Lord, if I say that to them, they may not like me. Never be a good preacher that way. You build a big church. <laughs> you might have a gymnasium, a bowling alley, lots of ping pong tables. Everybody in the world may say good things about you. But you may not be what God called you to be. Did you know that when God used His Apostle Paul to encourage Timothy in the way that he should preach... Have you ever thought about this? What is preaching? What did we say? Exhortation. It's encouragement. It's instruction in the Word. And yet when Paul tells Timothy what he's going to preach in 2 Timothy 4, he says, correct, rebuke, and encourage. How much preaching do you hear that is true correction and rebuking? One of the things I love about this service is I walk into it with sin in my life. I have no idea what you may or may not prophesy. I have no idea in what way my God might humble me before you. I say, well, Eric, you must lead a holy life. No, I get it right, my friends. <laughs> I do not sit in my sin long. The moment that I find out that I have zigged when I should have zagged, I didn't say zigzags, when I zigged when I should have zagged, I get it right, right there with him. The Holy Spirit is in you so that the 
Judgment can begin with God's people. And if it begins with you, the Scripture says, what would be the outcome for the ungodly? In other words, if you're corrected every day as you go along, each time you zig when you should have zagged, then when you stand before Him on that day, all of your correction's done. It is time to receive a reward from the King. But if you live a life that is totally uncorrected, all of your life you do what you want to do, what do you think that day is going to be full of? A fearful expectation of judgment. In God's kingdom, there is not room to do what you want to do and what God wants you to do. But there is a beautiful miracle that happens. When you fully commit your ways to Him, you find out the things you want to do are the very things He's designed you to do. We're looking for that union, saints. When you give up what you would like to do and choose only that which God would want you to, and then suddenly you find out the two were never that far apart in the first place. You just had to get it right in your heart. Isn't that awesome? Don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not saying you do whatever you want to do and God will bless it. The world's already doing that. The church is already doing that. And it produces a greasy grace and a sloppy agape, a license for immorality that stinks. The whole world is going, church is full of hypocrites because of that. I'm talking about literally getting before God and saying, examine my path, Lord. Am I walking the way you want me to walk? Because I'm sure there's a widow somewhere that you would like me to be encountering. Am I doing what you want me to do? Saints, you need to get in that place and examine. I won't be too hard, but I do want you to understand this. If you've misunderstood something that I've said, or maybe because we're close and have a relationship, you think that your butt in those seats somehow earns you favor with God, you're wrong. He will absolutely burn you. The only people that make it into the kingdom of God are those who do the will of the Father. And if your life is full of sitting in a seat but not doing His will, you will not make it. And it would be wrong for me to give you false encouragement that you will. In fact, it's wise of me to correct and rebuke and then encourage. There are some of you that shine like stars and I'm excited. There are some others that I'm scared for. I'm scared for you. Sit close enough to the fire to enjoy its heat and fall asleep right next to it without doing anything about it. I don't want that. Let's look at this widow. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. What a word. What would that require? Lots and lots of trust in what he said. She only has enough for her and her son and they're planning on eating it and dying Does that sound like maybe they're in a desperate situation? And what did the Word of the Lord to them say? First, give to God what's His. And then trust that you'll have what you need. Now, we have taken that and made it some gospel of gain, like God was an investment program. I don't believe that. I believe what He's after is a heart that truly trusts Him. The word to this woman was, if you give to God first then you will have what you need. 
Do you remember what verse 12 said? We wrote it on the Lord your God. This woman is not a believer. She's not in the nation of Israel. And yet the word to her is still, if you show trust in Yahweh God, He will take care of you. There's no special class of people on this earth. Some were given revelation that others don't have. Praise God. But what God is looking for from every human being is that they would first show trust in Him that He might take care of them. When we don't do what He says to do, what we're showing is we do not trust Him. All the churchy language in the world will not hide it. When we don't do what He says to do, we're showing we don't trust Him. Watch this. Then go and make something for yourself and your son. Verse 14. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up. The jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. What is, what is rain? Heavenly blessing. This woman had to use what she had, trusting that God would give her more. And God said, if you do that, it will not run out. Amen, Craig? Amen. But how many situations have we gotten in we said, Lord, if you give me more, then I will give you some. Now, saints, I'm not talking about money. That's, that's part of it. I'm talking about your life. Lord, if you do this for me, then I will do that for you. We negotiate and bargain with God. Saints, when you give Him all that you have, when you give Him every area of your life, He will make provision for you in every area and you will lack nothing. People have said, oh, well, they're always blessed. Those people never find themselves in the position we are in. wonder why. This woman's in the same famine everybody else is in. Elijah's in that very same famine and drought. Yet they're going to provide, find provision and others are not. Why do you think that is? Because some did what God told them to do and others didn't. There's probably some rich fat guy here in this woman's town talking about how blessed of God he is because all the gold he has and all the flour and all the stuff that he has. That's not blessing. Blessing is when you had nothing and God gave you everything. That's blessing. Everything you needed. Watch this. She does what he says to do. It's an amazing thing how that works. God speaks, and she did it. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. Nothing makes a preacher happier than to hear later in the week, that thing you preached about? I was surprised. I thought you were lying when you said it. But I tried it. And would you believe it worked? That's what I said. I told you all this Wednesday. You want to call and give me a testimony? Amen. You don't have to ask permission to do that. Just call and give the testimony. You want to call and complain about what's not going right in your life? That you should ask permission for. <laughs> Amen. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. you kidding me. Your word said it. We did it. And worked. This should not be a novel concept, should it? But what we could do is we could get all of us together, right? And I could just say, there, there. Pillow prophets, fluff and spice and everything nice. Y'all are all such great people. And you'd go on and say, oh, we're blessed. We go to church. We hear good music. 
Wasn't it entertaining, that music? Oh, the lights and oh, the feeling there was just great. You pass right by the widow on the side of the road. You run over the guy wounded on the way to Jericho down from Jerusalem, but you're so blessed. When did church become a bless me group? When did church become a social gathering for marketing? When did God's group of chosen people, when did obedience become optional? When did we substitute committee for the leading of the Holy Spirit? These things should not be. In your life, obedience cannot be optional. You know why? There are widows out there waiting to see if God's Word through you is true. And He cares about them. He cares about them as much as He cares about your big screen TV or your car in your driveway or the nice designer clothes on your backs. He cares. He really does. And not just about Americans. He cares about them all. And He's waiting for a church that will take Him seriously enough to go where He says and do what He says. To go there. To be there. To meet you there. He's waiting for that. Will He find it in us? What a good question. I hope so. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. Well, then this surely can't be God. God doesn't use ravens to feed people. He wouldn't ask a widow to supply your needs. That would be taking advantage of the widow, right? Isn't that funny? In ministry, this happens. You preach to whoever God draws, right? And because He's a good God, He cares about people from every walk of society. He brings to you some widows. And through His miraculous provision, He uses those widows to meet your needs. Then what does everybody say? Oh, He takes advantage of the widows. Sometimes to the impure, nothing is pure. No matter what you try to do for God, there will always be a group of people that pick on it. And I know that. But I've decided that the favor of the Father outweighs the opinions of my brothers. I have decided that even if I were sold out and thrown in a hole, I want that coat from my Father that shows His approval on me. I hope you'll decide the same thing. It makes all the difference in your life. Someone here went to Master's Commission. I'm excited. That is a good thing. But if all you came away from Master's Commission with was a degree, then you really missed out. Some in here have been in church all of your lives. And that's great. I hope you can quote lots of sermons from it. But if that's all you can do, if there's not a long list of lives changed, a legacy of people that now love God that didn't before, then we're failing. I don't want to fail. I don't want to. I want to stand before Him and hear those words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. There was a time when I was first born again, I wouldn't work out. I know that surprises you in looking at this corpulent body here. I prefer the term robust. Because I was concerned that if I spent more time there than I did reading the Word, I'd be dishonoring God. Boy, how my life has changed. Sometimes God comes and He stirs you again. He says, I want you to do the things now that you did in the beginning. Sometimes we sell everything that we have to obtain that pearl of great... Then after we have it, we spend our whole life trying to clutter our house again with all that garbage we didn't need. Thank you, Matthew. He knew I was looking for that one word that I promised not to say anymore. It's Hebrew for rubbish. 
No, not really. Okay. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. Uh-oh. What are problems, saints? I think we have a chart up here. An obstacle is an opportunity to overcome. Why do you think God sent Elijah to this woman's house? Well, sometime later, her son became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. I would say that's ill. Craig, in your medical opinion as a nurse, would you say that's ill? Not breathing? Yeah, that's, that's, that's ill. I want you to hear this. This woman told Elijah, you're God. She's seen provision for a long time now. If provision got people saved, God would have just given us all fat bank accounts. It does not. That is the wrong gospel. Listen to what happens. Her kid has stopped breathing. Would you say that's a desperate situation? My little Gabriel stopped breathing twice in his life. I can tell you that's a desperate situation. In fact, don't get between me and the hospital on the way. Because I will pray, I'll lay hands on him, and I will drive 100 miles an hour to get to the doctor. I'll do both. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Do you think that this is some kind of deluded thinking? Is she deranged? Saints, sometimes when we don't find acceptance among people, it's because our very presence, the fact that we are doing what God tells us to do, brings conviction in the lives around us. They say Charles Finney could sit on a train, not open his mouth, and the people around him would say, Sir, in your presence I feel convicted of sin, and revival would break out. When people sit in your presence, what do they feel? What do they see? Yeah, that's a standard to live up to, isn't it? They sit in your presence, what will they hear? A few coarse jokes? Huh? They'd be wildly entertained? Or will their life be advanced for the kingdom? See, this is something to live up to. But think about this. What do you do? You come to a dog who was about to die. You've been feeding her by doing what God said to do, by teaching her the Word. <laughs> Ministry is a hard thing. People come in, they clean their feet on you, and then they walk off. <laughs> We're like those little things that golfers have that clean their cleats on. All right? Elijah's been serving this woman by teaching her about the God of Israel. First bad thing that happens, what does she do? She turns on Elijah. That pastor told me. <laughs> Sometimes more pastors are eating after church than fried chicken. And what did they do? They loved you. They told you the truth. You just didn't like it. She is mad at Elijah. And why is she mad? Because something bad has happened to her and she thinks it's Elijah's fault. Mm. So what do you do if you're Elijah? I know what you do. You stupid old hag. I'm the only reason you're still alive. And now I'm leaving. <laughs> That's right. The committee has met. And we've decided our church no longer needs to be graced with your presence. What do you do if you're Elijah? I think you would be best served at a fellowship down the road. You don't really fit in here. What do you do if you're Elijah? You know, sister, we've been meaning to talk to you for a long time, but your dress really is not appropriate here. What do you do if you're Elijah? Well, if you've been trained to hear the voice of God, to love what He loves, you can look past legalism. You can even eat something from an unclean bird. You can go into a Gentile's house because you know where God's heart is. And so, Elijah says, Give me your son. Elijah replied, He took him from her arms carry 
carried him to the upper room where she was staying and laid him on his bed. Where did he take him? Into his close, personal space. People around us are dying. Sometimes it's easy to see there's a famine. Other times it's less easy to see because it's a spiritual famine. And they need what you have. But they don't always know it. In fact, they're convicted to be around you. So they find ways to push you away. They say things to you that are sharp, that slap your face because they're trying to discover something. Is there really anybody that does what Jesus says? Turn the other cheek. Sometimes they've been slapping so many faces everywhere they go, looking, trying to find, is anybody real? Or is this all just a joke? And most Christians they meet confirm for them it's just a pathetic joke. Because when they give you the opportunity to be insulted, but to consider it the glory of God resting on your shoulders, we mix Baal with Yahweh. We slap them back. We don't love them. God's looking for the heart that will say, even if He saved me, I still will love Him. And He sent me here to love you. You don't understand it? You filed a lawsuit against me this week. It's still my job to love you. Because God gets glory by doing what nobody thought could be done. So He takes this woman's son into His own room. Saints, lost people get saved when they get a chance to get inside of your life, past the facade, past who you are at work, how everybody sees you, and see you. They get saved when they find out that what is in you is real. And to do that, they have to reach the intimate places in your life. That means they see failure and they see success. But mostly what they see is trust and dependence on God. He took him into his own room. What do you normally do when people hurt you? Push them away. What we have to learn to do as people of God is when people hurt us, pull them closer. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with? by causing her son to die. I love this. Elijah didn't always understand what God was doing either, but he trusted Him. I tried to start this church. The first couple of years were pretty rough. We preached to a group of about four. Yeah. Well, that was encouraging. Loved you four. <laughs> Thank you. And there were times I didn't understand what God was doing. Should that cause you to push God away or pull Him closer? You can't run from God when He doesn't do what you want Him to do. That makes Him God and you the man. Then He stretched Himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. Not only did He bring him into His close personal space, but then He rubbed shoulders with him. He got close with him, eye to eye, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, so that could see what was inside of Him. As human beings, we are used to letting people see only what we want them to see. 
And we feel violated when they see who we really are. God has called us to live in a vulnerable fashion. To lay our lives out there for everybody to see. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Because somewhere in there they should see a trust for God. This boy is dead. And Elijah is not scared for a dead Gentile to be touching him. Even though it's against his law. Instead, he lays on him not not twice, but three times. This shows perseverance. He knows that the life in him can rub off on that guy if he will just stay close enough. When people hurt you, don't push them away. They need the life that is in you. That's why God gave it to you. It wasn't for you. It was for them. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. What changed it for the woman? Greed? Gain? Having her bank account get fatter? No, the Lord's provision was there. But it wasn't until she saw a truly changed life, somebody who was dead is now alive, that she began to stop saying, You're God, and start saying, Now I know about God. Now I know about God. Our job is to rub shoulders with the lost. Our job is to bring them into the place where we are. And where are we? There. Wherever God said to be. If Zarephath, great. If the Kiriath Ravine, great. We go where He says to do what He sent us to do. He wants you to rub shoulders with the loss that their life would get in you. That's what He wants. We don't have time to read it. But you remember that we started with Elijah shutting up the heavens so that the heavenly blessing couldn't fall on Israel. The way to get blessings to fall in your life is found in the 18th chapter. Elijah begins to address the people in the 21st verse. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. God is not begging you to follow Him. That is as wrong as thinking that He wants to smash everybody. They're both wrong. He's laying out the truth and looking for who has noble character, who will follow Him. And what hinders His kingdom the most is not people who choose Baal. It's people who will not choose either. They claim to have both. Christians, we cannot sit on the fence. That will keep the lost confused. If we mix our life with death, then we have nothing to offer the dead people. If you put a Christian in a situation with his peers and his peers have greater influence on him than he has on them, it's because he has, an undivide, he has a divided heart. It's too much bail in his kingdom. You want God's heavenly blessing in you? Put to death the prophets of Baal in your life. Put to death all those voices that tell you to do what you want to do rather than what you know God has said to do. Elijah sets up a demonstration for these people. The altars are symbolic of their hearts. The lost people's hearts are bleeding because they've been slashed in the pursuit of their gods. Walking in the world will never leave you unscarred. It'll hurt you. 
Elijah simply cries out to God after softening his altar with the water of the word and God answers by fire. And then all Israel had to be prepared for a rain because when you purge the Baal from your kingdom, the rain will always fall. You might even say God's looking for the opportunity to send fresh rain into your lives. Craig, wasn't that your word on the internet? He's looking for the opportunity to send His rain in your lives. We're going to stand up here in a minute, but I'm still asking you to hear the voice of Elijah. How long will you waver between two opinions? Get in God's camp or get gone. I want to build a church, but I don't build that through occupants. I don't build that by numbers of people in the seats. We build that by seeing people who are obedient and their blessings come from the Lord. I want with all my heart to do that. And I want each of you to do it as well. But as long as you ride the fence and are a bench warmer in the kingdom, you do more harm than good. Get sold out or get out. That was Elijah's word to an entire nation. And preachers are scared to say it. And I'm not. You know why? I found out the goats are the ones that give you the horns. And it's usually at a time when you didn't need it, when you felt weak already. Saints, I believe He's called each one of you here as a precious metal. I think He's forming you and shaping you, but sometimes that takes heat. Sometimes it takes heat followed by cold. He does what it takes to get you malleable because He wants to build you into something. Will you yield to what He's doing or will you cling to Baal so tightly that He can't work with you? That's the question. Stand up and we'll make our decisions.